Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm John Purcell. I'm sitting here with Olivia Frico. Hello. And we've got Meg Keneally in. Hello. Thank you for having me back. Without your encumbrance, which is awesome. <laughs> Without adult supervision. Without adult supervision. <laughs> yes, nice. Um, to talk about your new novel with your name on the front, Fled. Yes. All by itself, your name. It's beautiful. It's exciting. I'm still hyperventilating. So this, um, this novel, which has one of the most attractive covers that we've seen in a long time, which is a very shallow way to start, but it's true. <laughs> we do judge books by their covers. So. Yeah. Um, is based on a, a historical person. Can you tell us about the novel? Yeah. So it's fiction, but it's based on uh, a first fleet convict called Mary Bryant, who, in a nutshell, uh, uh, was a highway woman brought up in Cornwall, uh, operated as a successful highway woman uh, before her luck ran out. She was arrested, transported to Australia with the First Fleet, um, uh, had two children, uh, became convinced that they wouldn't survive uh, because the colony was on the brink of collapse as a result of starvation. Um, and uh, masterminded a plan, at least I believe she masterminded it, uh, to nick the governor's cutter and sailed it with her two toddlers, her husband and some other convicts to West Timor, as you do, where they successfully passed themselves off as shipwreck survivors for a while until <laughs> they're betrayed and all sorts of other adventures ensue. So how, how closely have you kept to uh, Mary Bryant's story in your story? The broad brush strokes are the same. Uh, so the major elements of the story are based on historical fact. There are minor changes that I made. First of all, uh, the character's got a different name. Um, <clears throat> and I struggle with this a bit because Mary Bryant's story is so extraordinary. You don't really need to do much to it to make it very, very dramatic. In fact, it's, you know, it's, it's impossible to make it any more dramatic than it already is. So I've had people ask me, why didn't you just do it as, you know, faction, if you know what I mean, like historical biography almost. Um, the reason I didn't is twofold, uh, primarily because Mary was illiterate. Uh, so we don't actually know what she thought and felt and believed. We can only sort of guess at what she was like by her actions. So, you know, I'm guessing she's no shrinking violet. I'm guessing she was a fairly strong personality. But when you're writing fiction, obviously, and particularly from the point of view of one person, you really need to get inside their head and give readers a sense of what they believed, what they thought. And I didn't really want to put thoughts and beliefs and words into the mouth of a woman who actually lived without knowing <coughs> whether they were actually hers. So that was one reason. The other reason was I did make some changes minor changes to what actually happened for the sake of narrative convenience, you know. Uh, so, for example, there were actually 11 convicts plus the two children uh, in the boat. Um, I've culled the number of convicts in the boat, boat significantly because uh, in order to make it a decent read, you would need to give each convict in the boat uh, a personality, a character, some sort of background. Otherwise, you've got a boat full of cardboard cutouts. Yeah. And if I was going to give them all, you know, a proper character, the book would have been long enough to break your toe when you dropped it. So uh, so I culled the number of convicts in the boat for that reason. I killed off Jenny, my fictional character's father, um, whereas in, in real life, you know, Mary's father didn't die the way I've represented in the book. And I also wanted to give her some sort of ending, some sort of closure. The real Mary disappears from history at the age of 29. Right. So we don't know what happened to her. 
and I I didn't want to. It's a lot of stuff to happen in a, yeah. Yeah, for 29 years. Absolutely, she packed it in. Yeah, she really did. <laughs> yeah. So when you when I mean I don't know how you came across um, uh, Mary, whether it was in your research for other books or. That was someone you've always been fascinated by, is that? Um, well, I, I have since I was a kid because uh, Dad, as you know, tells stories as easily as he breathes. <laughs> and there were many long road trips in my childhood in the days before iPads. So in order to stop my sister and I killing each other, we got told lots of stories. And these stories would be about talking volcanoes and miniature children who flew on the backs of bees. And in between them, there'd be stories of people from history, like Mary Bryant was one of them, and one of them that really fascinated me. But because she was jammed in between the the, the miniature children and the talking volcanoes, um, at age six or so, I, I didn't really register as a real person. It was just another story. Yeah. Um, uh, but she stuck in the back of my mind. And when I was researching The Soldier's Curse, which is the first book in the Montserrat series. I, I read a lot of Australian history and she cropped up again. And I thought, oh, yes, I remember you. Um, uh, and I researched her a bit and I thought, he wasn't making any of this up. He wasn't even exaggerating it. And, I mean, you know, Tom, that's a fairly extreme statement to say that he wasn't <laughs> even, you know, gilding the lily at all. So, um, so that's when I, you know, I started to become really interested in her and dad and I were sitting by the Hastings River uh, in Port Macquarie uh, during a research trip for the Soldier's Curse. Um, we were sitting at the pub near the river having a glass of wine as, you know, we occasionally do and I was saying, you know, I remember this story you used to tell me and so on and so forth and he said, yes, yeah, somebody should write a book about her, wink, wink. <laughs> <laughs> So that's how it started. Oh, thank you. For a long time, I didn't think I could do the story justice. It's such a big, big story, and she's such an incredible woman. But I'm I'm really really happy I did too. It was an extraordinary experience from a personal perspective. I just hope I've done it justice, and that's up to the readers, of course. So when when reading it, um, did you get a sense of, because you're going to fictionalise it, but you're bringing out the, the feminine story mm-hmm. in this so claire claire wright's got a bit on the front um yeah. so she's given the tick of approval um but with that with that beginning as a highway woman like are there mm-hmm. many people out there who are aware that there were highway women in that time her agency in this and her mm-hmm. her uh, through through the coming out on the fleet mm-hmm. through uh, the relationship she has through the new as you contend the idea mm-hmm. um these are all things that are very positive um and drawing out a woman from history was that part of the part of the, the enjoyment of writing this was to actually yeah. give a, a proper story to this? Absolutely. Well, part of the part of the attraction to me, for me to Mary and to um, the fictional character was uh, that um, I didn't want to represent her as some sort of paragon. She was an opportunist. She was resourceful. She was a survivor. She wasn't. She had a transactional morality, but I don't think she had a very, you know, highfalutin morality or anything like that. But I really just loved the way she navigated a very male-dominated world uh, using... Yeah. From the bottom, right? From the bottom, absolutely. From the very bottom, using whatever levers were at her, her disposal, uh, using her, her wits, um, and the force of her personality. Uh, and, um, reading between the lines of some of the accounts of that time and of her role, uh, she didn't leave an account herself, unfortunately, because as I said, she was illiterate. But reading between the lines, I find it hard to believe that she wasn't the driver 
behind this whole plan um, for various reasons. And I'm sure uh, that some people will want to argue that toss, but I, I honestly believe that she was the she was the mastermind. So she was a very interesting character to me for that reason because she was so unique in terms of just grabbing it by the neck and squeezing it until she got what she needed out of it. Um, and the idea of a female highwaywoman was very interesting to me as well. Um, uh, she, The reason I called her Jenny actually was after a woman called Jenny Diver, who was a famous highwaywoman in the 1600s and after whom Pirate Jenny in uh, the Threepenny Opera is named. Right. So for that reason, the name Jenny has always had a slightly swashbuckling characteristic to me. So that's why I, I chose that name. Yeah. When when reading history, sometimes as, as, as someone who likes to write uh, fiction as well, I sometimes go, wow, that would make a good story, but no one's going to believe it. Like, yeah, exactly. Was there a problem here with, with that? Because this story is just so... So extraordinary. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. How, did you, how, did you, how did you wrestle it and keep the believability... Around it happening. Well, I mean, it's it's easier when you can actually point to the historic record and say, no, 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 she really did. You know, she really was rescued from the gallows by James Boswell, etc. Yeah. Um, uh, Insteps, James Boswell. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is one of those extraordinary stories that you're right. Is if you if you you'd be accused of the utmost melodrama if you made it up out of whole cloth. You really would. Um, and researching the, the Montserrat books and, and also a book I'm writing at the moment, this keeps happening. These amazing stories keep cropping up and you go, no, no one would ever believe me if I, if yeah. I made that up. So, so for me, it's funny. Sometimes I found I had to tell myself to get out of the way of the story. Yeah. If you know what I mean. I found I was overwriting things, uh, to the detriment of what was actually happening because what was actually happening didn't need a lot of dressing up, didn't need a lot of, uh, you know, elaborate or, or flowery prose. So, yeah, for me that was one of the big challenges of writing this is, is just getting out of the way of the story. So in the interview we did recently with, mm. with Tom, you were talking, he was saying you give all those books their force and their flow. So were you like a little Tom inside, in, inside your own head, getting in your own way? <laughs> yes. Like it sounds like it, because you were the one who was all about speed and, 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 yeah. and flow. Yes, yes. And so here you are with, with one of the you know, one of the great stories, and, and you're tripping over yourself. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, it is as you say. She packed a lot into 29 years, and there's a lot of um, a lot of story there. Um, but what's really interesting about this period of hi- in history as well is the story's different depending on your perspective. Obviously, it was different from the perspective of the convicts. I wanted to... Uh, one of the things that I really desperately wanted to make sure of is that uh, the Indigenous part of the story was represented respectfully, um, and I really, really hope I've done that. Um, uh, so that's... You know, this is a, for, for, for someone like Jenny slash Mary, it's a story of exile. For someone like um, uh, the Eora, it's a story of invasion. Mm-hmm. So trying to get all of those different um, perspectives in there without without burying people in description and exposition and so on was 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 a challenge as well and was something I was really conscious of not doing, yeah. So it's a story that resists romanticizing. Yeah, yes. Because it wasn't a. I mean, I feel, I feel like the way that we talk about it and write mm. about that time is 
as if it was this great period of adventure, but it wasn't actually for anyone involved, really, no. except for maybe the higher-ups. So yeah. it's good to see that approach coming through in fiction. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was, a, it was a tough time, and I really wanted to... I didn't want to shirk away from the fact that, for example, women use sex to get better rations, just as an example. Mm. Um, see, I wouldn't have known that. Yeah, the way we talk about it. Yeah, that's right. And it's it's sort of it it makes us feel almost uncomfortable to say, yeah, women did actually use their bodies too, uh, but if that was all they had and it was that or starvation, you know. And I didn't want to shirk away from um, from any of the unpleasant aspects of uh, the early um, European colonisation of Sydney, and it was mostly unpleasant for all concerned, as you say. Um, it was certainly awful for the um uh, uh for the indigenous people it was not much better for the convicts it was pretty bad for the uh the marines and uh <laughs> i don't think anybody was having was having much of a good time but at the you know at the same time it's uh it was important to me as well to show the sort of response of strong personalities like mary's to that level of hardship. Um, and one of the things, one of the stories as well, that one of, one of the concepts rather that dragged me through this whole book, one of the questions I kept asking myself is why would she put her children at that level of risk? Yeah. Um, it, it, on this point, it's mm. very interesting that you're writing this book now when we're discussing why people would put their family at risk yeah, coming into absolutely. the country. And she's yes. putting a family at risk going out of the country. Of so the, the country. desperation yes. was there. On that point, though, I'm, I'm a bit confused on this. I'm not really, um, I'm not really sure either mm. way. But was the bounty escape from Bly known to Mary Bryant and the Sydney Cove um, uh, enclave, a tiny the, little group of people that were there? Uh, did they know about that that major escape? Was um, uh, the higher ups would have. Um, I think Mary and her. Um, uh, her sort of group, but 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 I mean, it, it sort of happened almost at the same time that they yeah, were so underway. I've, I've heard, I've heard so it said that word the, would have trickled through, yeah, I think, to Philip maybe. Um, but I don't think I don't think that's where Mary. Yeah, because someone said to me that's how they got the. I'm going. It's too close. No. Surely, I mean, information took so long to get anywhere. Yeah. In that period. Yeah, no, that's that, right. That's right, and I, I, I don't, I don't believe it. It was how they got the idea. Um, they, so this is even worse when just popping yeah. a boat in and going, "We're going to go that way." Wasn't there another group that decided to walk to China? Like, there's a really yeah. a massive amount of information, mass, uh, misinformation going on as well. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and um, you know, it, it wasn't as though it was a well-known stretch of coastline, but they did find out about. They did know where they were going thanks to. Uh, a Dutch sea captain. And this is one of the, there were so many things that had to go right, so many stars that had to align to get all 13 people on that boat, 5,000 kilometres through stormy seas and so on, from Sydney to West Timor. Mm. Um, there were so many things that had to, had to happen and they all did. And one of the things that they needed was a destination and a means of getting there, which they didn't have until 
a, a Dutch captain called Detmer Smit arrived um, with uh, some provisions which he'd brought from Batavia. Um, he and Philip had a blazing row because the butter was rancid and the flour was weevily and so on. So Smit uh, retreated to his uh, his ship uh, and sort of bobbed around in the harbour fuming and Mary um, cultivated him washed his clothes, rowed them back out to his boat and so on. And ultimately he get, he told them about uh, Copang, which is now Kupang in West Timor, their destination. He told them about that um, and he gave them a quadrant and a chart. And that's how they knew where to go. And if he hadn't, if he hadn't been the sea captain who arrived at Sydney Harbour with the provisions, if he'd been on good terms with Philip, they wouldn't have had any idea where they were going. Um, and, so, and how, I mean, oh. you have James Boswell <coughs> stepping in in the end. Yes. How famous was this in the time? He was like a um, uh, 18th century rake, an 18th century cleaver <laughs> green. Yeah. Um, he had written this very, very well-known biography of um, Dr Johnson. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he so was... Just after that. Uh, yes, yeah. And he was... He was uh, a very well-known jurist, a well-known writer, um, and a massive drinker and womaniser. Is this a case that he wanted to take on because it was so uh, topical and, and was, it, was it being talked about? Is... It was very much being talked about, yes. Yeah, she was in the papers all the time. She was known as the girl from Botany Bay, although, um, uh, oddly enough, she, she probably never set foot in Botany Bay. <laughs> um, uh, and... Uh, uh, you know, she was a bit of a cause celeb when she returned to uh, uh, to London. And I actually think that uh, my fictional ver- version of James Boswell, Richard Aldred, has less pure mo- motives for helping her than I think the actual James Boswell did. Because despite uh, the fact that he was a drinker, womaniser and so forth, he was actually a very keen, genuinely a believer in justice. And, I, you know, he believed that she'd suffered enough and he put bent all of his will towards securing her an unconditional pardon, which he eventually did. Um, uh, my fictional character has that aspect to him but also really wants the profile yeah. that would come from rescuing this suddenly famous woman, you know. And so. have you looked at the way this story's been told since then? Like, are there any different ways people have actually... Uh, told the story of Mary Bryant in in different in different formats. Yeah, uh, well, uh, Dr. Jonathan King, who um, uh, also kindly contributed a quote to the cover, people might know him as the man who organised the first fleet reenactment in 1988. He basically <coughs> rebuilt the first fleet and sailed it from Portsmouth to Sydney, arriving on Australia Day 1988, bicentennial. So he he knows a lot about the sea, he knows a lot about history, he knows a lot about boats, and he wrote. Uh, a story which was written as fiction, but which was uh, she had her own name. She, uh, you know, uh, it, it was a lot more, a lot more like historical biography. Apart from that, all the other retellings I've seen have been historical biography, right. and some of them written like novels and very, very, very well written. But um, I think a lot of people probably thought, um, you know, there's no need to fictionalise this because all of the elements of an incredible story are already there. I mean, her life story even fits into three acts, conveniently. <laughs> um, so... But we, we, we as, uh, as readers of fiction, love to get more. Like, and, and all mm-hmm. those historical types, they don't give you that. They, they go, we don't... Of course, she's a literary, we don't have any records, so we can't tell you what you thought. Yeah. It's like, come on, dude, have some imagination. Yeah, Give yeah. us some... 
And this is this is that that final piece of the puzzle, which is filling in all that, all that's that right. detail. That's right. What but, she thought, what she, how she acted, what she was like. Um, that's right, and that's um, that's that's the main reason why I wanted to fictionalise her. And the only surviving first-hand account of that journey from Sydney to Coupang uh, was written by a fellow called James Martin, a convict who was in the boat, and he talks about where they put in, what their latitude and longitude was, what they ate, how they lit fires. He does not at any time say, we argued or we're feeling desperate or, um, you know, uh, the children are restless or anything like that. And I was like, come on. <laughs> what a terrible problem. I'm trying to write a book here. Can you please give me a little bit more? <laughs> so are there any other, like, are there any other cases that you were better documented that you could actually go and research and then, like, there's Bly's? Yeah, there's Bly's. Uh, I read Bly's journals of his time in because he went to the same place. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he went to Coupang as well. Um, uh, so he describes what it's yes, like there? Yeah. Okay, so yes. Yeah. So, so that, that very much helps. Um, uh, I read all of the journals of all of the officers who were, um, uh, who were part of the, you know, the initial settlement, um, and a lot of, you know, more modern oh, historical what, what works. What Contention is in here as well? What Contention is one of my favourites. Yeah. Um, I love What Contention. He was a man ahead of his time. Uh, he was a very, um, uh, very, uh, progressive. He had very progressive attitudes for someone of his time. And in fact, uh, one of, one of the coincidences in this story, which people will find unbelievable until they realise that it happened, is, what content and the Bryants were on good terms, and he would sometimes, as his fictional counterpart does, go and haul nets with them. Um, and uh, uh, then they escaped, and then and the next time he saw them, he was getting onto a boat uh, in Cape Town, transferring boats. Uh, his tour was over, and he was on his way back to England. And uh, Mary was being held prisoner on that boat on her way back to England. Um, and I, I put that in the uh, in the novel, thinking people won't believe this coincidence until <laughs> yeah. they find out that it actually did did happen. So there are so many things like that in this story. It's extraordinary. It's um, it, one of the temptations of fictionalizing historical stuff is is to go too far. Did you set yourself limits on on how far you could go and and how much respect you had to have for original character and because you, know, mm. you don't want to. Yeah, there's, there's kind of responsibility on the author's part. Yeah, yeah, especially if you're dealing with, even though they don't have the same names and it's not quite what happened, um, you are really dealing with, you know, people who actually lived. And oddly enough, and I still, you know, I, I, I'm still not sure why, why I did this, but I felt that I wanted to give the children the names they actually had. Yeah. So just as a little nod to them, you know, which is completely sentimental and... Uh, um, you know, illogical, but I just really wanted to, to do that. Um, and I wanted to make sure that her, her actions were seen in context. Um, as I said, I think she was a woman of transactional, transactional morality, but I think that was because she had to be, uh, to survive. So I wanted to make sure that the background to why she did turn to crime, uh, was there in terms of high taxes, um, the pilchards which had helped her family survive suddenly not showing up one year, all of that sort of thing. But also I really wanted to put into context why they would have felt that they had no choice but to go. 
Um, uh, and as I said before, one of the questions that I was was in my mind the whole time is why would she put her children at such such risk? And I've had people say to me, well, life was cheaper then. People were used to infant mortality um, and perhaps, you know, it wasn't the same choice for her as it would have been for a modern uh, mother. But I don't really buy that because... No, you read the journals, you read the yeah. letters, it's not no, nothing. No, Every absolutely. one of them hurts. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, as a species, um, fierce maternal love is one of the things that's helped us survive as a species mm. to uh, to this point. So I kind of really felt I had to fully demonstrate to the reader <coughs> that there was no choice. Yeah. I, have, I have my um, my early Sydney Cove, um, uh, Sydney is... Um, coloured by uh, old Sydney town up in. Uh, oh, I remember Gosset, that too. They used Gosset. to sell mead at the gift shop yeah. <laughs> and um, rum. And in in that way, I, I I can see. Yeah, let's get the hell out of here. It looks terrible. Yeah. Um, but how do you see Sydney Cove? Because uh, it was still the harbour, like still gorgeous and it mm. was pristine, and there were whales. Um, yes. In the harbour. Yeah. Like, and there wasn't any harbour bridge. There was no no real amount of sewage going into it. Yeah. Uh, so how how do they? Uh, did you go back and, and how do they see it? Does she see it as just a, a barren wasteland, like to escape yeah. from? There was no light rail halfway built. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think yes. I think when 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 you don't have enough food to eat, possibly. And I've never been in a position where I've been on the brink of starvation. Thankfully, as you can tell easily by looking at me. Um, but I, I do think that um, the scarcity that they had there would have would have coloured their views on it. Uh, yeah. And a lot of people did see it as hell on earth, yeah. um, uh, despite its beauty. Um, uh, it, it, they really seriously didn't, nearly didn't make it. Uh, they made assumptions about what kind of crops would take in the soil and those crops didn't take. Soon after they arrived, the livestock buggered off. Um, uh, the uh, governor's hounds couldn't bring down any kangaroos. And through all this, n- nobody thought to actually ask the Eora mm. uh, how they were managing to survive, as they quite clearly were yeah. very, very well I was until. Just about to say that. Yeah. No one think about looking at them. Yeah. No one thought of. No one thought of looking at uh, looking at them. Although um, there was a friendship between Benelong um, and Barangaroo and um, the Bryants, and they did. Um, Will Bryant uh, did take Benelong's family out on the fishing boat and Benelong, we think, taught the Bryants a lot about the currents and the tides and the way the ocean operates mm-hmm. here, um, which was also, you know, very useful to them yeah. in their escape. Uh, Peter Simons, when he was here talking about his Birkin wheels, said it was mm-hmm. like it was, it was, Birkin wheels dying where they did was like dying in aisle three of Woolies. Yeah. <laughs> You know, yes, and they had they yeah. had everyone out around them to help them, and they ignored them. Um, yeah, and there were you know, staff there to to pick whatever they wanted. Yes, <laughs> and yeah. same thing happened with these these people landing in Sydney. Absolutely, yeah. They just you know they 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 just assumed that um, European farming practices, the European way of survival, would translate here, and it just didn't. Um, they made so many assumptions, and uh, including the including the assumption that. Whoever came forward to deal with them was the chief. Yeah. And in fact, it just was, you know, 
The talking one. Yeah, the talking one, exactly. <laughs> the exactly. Uh, so they, they made a lot of assumptions about the Eora, which turned out to be wrong. One of them, and I put this in the book because I thought it was a good demonstration of how so many incorrect assumptions were made. Um, they, Captain Cook had heard the term kangaroo used. Uh, and so he had said, well, this is what those big hoppy things are called. Um, but that was what those big hoppy things were called up north. Um, so when, you know, the colonists uh, were referring to kangaroos, uh, we think that the Eora actually assumed that that was a, a foreigner name for a large animal. Right. Because... They didn't know what a kangaroo was. They were patagramed too. <laughs> so they just made the assumption that the language was universal throughout yeah. the country, you yeah. know. Well, they we, we couldn't even get the same language from one end of you know, England to the next. Yes, yeah. exactly, yeah. And especially in those days. Yeah. Um, Meg, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having this. me. Thank you. It's a wonderful novel. Um, Flat is available from booktopia.com.au right now. Thank you again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Booktopia podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if your eyeballs need a workout, check us out on YouTube at Booktopia TV. And don't forget for all books featured on this episode and all episodes of the Booktopia podcast, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at www.booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening.